The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights at Stanford University. I'm Callie Ward. I'm in the final year of my PhD in Iberian and Latin American cultures here at Stanford. I wrote a dissertation on Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, amnesty laws, post-dictatorial human rights issues, and contemporary literature in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. And I'm Joe Wager, a third-year PhD student in Iberian and Latin American cultures at Stanford as well. I look at questions of law and humanities in Latin America, specifically in contemporary Colombia and Mexico. Today we're talking with Diana Guzman Rodriguez, a human rights lawyer, professor, and JSD from Stanford Law, about human rights issues and the peace process in Colombia, especially in the wake of the 2016 peace accords. You are listening to The Rights Pod. We have the pleasure today of speaking with Diana Guzman Rodriguez. Diana received her JSD, a doctorate in law, and JSM, a master in sociolegal research, from Stanford Law School. She holds an MA in law from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia, where she is currently an associate professor. She teaches in the areas of legal theory and sociology of law, transitional justice, and constitutional law. Additionally, she is the deputy director at De Justicia, a research and advocacy organization dedicated to strengthening the rule of law and the promotion of social justice and human rights in Colombia and the Global South. Diana has been part of the board of directors at De Justicia since 2019. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. What are you working on these days? Could you tell us about your dissertation and how this led to your current work? Kali, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here with you two today. Uh, sure. So after finishing my JSD at Stanford in June last year, I've spent the last seven months teaching constitutional law and transitional justice at uh, Universidad Nacional in Bogotá and working at the Justicia. As a deputy director at this organization, I've worked closely with the team working on transitional justice issues. Um, and this has allowed me to connect some of the questions I analyzed in my doctoral research with one of the most pressing issues right now in Colombia, which is the implementation of the Peace Accord. Uh, so, how my doctoral research connects with my current work. I think I need to explain a little bit about my dissertation and then about the peace process. So in terms of my dissertation, I analyzed the extent to which and the ways in which social, economic, and cultural inequalities have shaped transitional justice policies in Latin American post-conflict settings, and uh, particularly in Peru and Colombia. So as part of my case study on Colombia, I had the opportunity to analyze some dimensions of the peace process between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, better known as FARC, 
and the Colombian government. While as a Colombian and as a human rights lawyer, I knew from the very beginning of the negotiation that this, this, this negotiation could become a milestone in Colombian history. It was only during my time uh, conducting field research that I better understood how high the stakes were, not only for the parties at the negotiation, but also for the whole society. So I became aware of how critical and also how challenging um, this implementation of the agreement could be for my country. And so when I came back to Bogota and I started working at the Justicia, it actually allowed me to delve into those challenges that the implementation of the peace accord represents for Colombia, but also to explore different ways to face them. So one of the key questions in our work at the Justicia is precisely how to strengthen civil society organizations and also state institutions working on the implementation of this final peace agreement. And so it brings me to explain a little bit about this peace process in Colombia, because I guess most of the people that are listening to us today not necessarily know about it. So the peace process in Colombia that I'm talking about is basically, or it refers to the negotiation between the Colombian government and the FARC, uh, which by the way, was the oldest and largest guerrilla group in the country to end a 52 year internal armed conflict. Uh, as you can imagine, ending a conflict and building peace is not an easy task in any society. And for Colombia, uh, this difficult task was colored by, among other factors, the complexity of the conflict and the, or at least some internal and international politics. So I guess it makes sense talk or uh, saying something about the complexity of the conflict, because that's something that sometimes people don't really get when they are not part or, or when they have not suffered a, and an internal armed conflict for 52 years. So the first thing that I would say about that is that it was, by, by the time of um, the, the, the peace agreement became a reality, this is 2016, the internal armed conflict in Colombia was the longest in the hemisphere, the, the longest active armed conflict in the hemisphere. Uh, and it involved multiple actors. So it involved various left-wing guerrilla groups from different ideologies, a, a state forces, and right-wing paramilitary groups. Additionally, some of these groups had strong links with drug trafficking, either uh, because they engaged in the production cycle of uh, cocaine or because they somehow become involved in the trafficking in itself. Uh, the point is, and, and this is what I wanted to emphasize here, is that the resources from drug trafficking fueled the conflict for many years. And it explains, as we, I'm sure we will have the opportunity to talk later, um, why talking about uh, political violence in Colombia is so difficult because it's not only about the conflict, but also about other sources of violence, such as the presence of drug trafficking in many areas of, of the country. 
So another reason why this why ending this conflict was so complex is the the the, the changing dynamics in the in, in in the actors and the ways in which they engaged in violence, and of course the existence of millions of victims. So right now, according to official figures, uh, in Colombia there are over eight million IDPs. This is internally displaced persons. Um, as a matter of fact, Colombia has been one of the countries with the highest number of internally displaced persons. Uh, and of course, we have victims of other forms of uh, human rights violations, such as killings, kidnapping, uh, forced disappearance, rape, and so on and so forth. And all this was happening in the context of a highly unequal society. Colombia has one of the highest Gini coefficient of land concentration in the region and in the world. So for those of you who are not familiar with the idea of Gini, this is a coefficient that measures a concentration of wealth. And particularly in this case, we are talking about the fact that most of the land, cultivable land in Colombia are concentrated in the hands of very few people. Um, so it, it tells us about how unequal Colombia is, and of course, inequalities, as I had the opportunity to explore in my dissertation, played an important role in the narratives about conflict, but also in the way in which different actors involved in violence. And in terms of, uh, I, I was saying that this negotiation was particularly challenging because the conflict was com complex, but also for the politics behind the negotiation in itself. So there are many reasons explaining this. I'm just gonna mention two for the sake of time. Uh, the first one is that this wasn't the first time in which the government or the state was trying to negotiate with FARC or with other guerrilla groups. As a matter of fact, Colombia had a long history of distrust and failed attempts to achieve peace. Uh, and particularly with the FARC, after the last attempt to negotiate with them, which took place in a region called San Jose del Caguan, there was an increasing lack of legitimacy uh, of the guerrilla, particularly FARC, and also uh, an increased distrust in its willingness to actually participate in a negotiation and achieving peace. So for many people in Colombia, uh, FARC became um, organization involved in drug trafficking and also in terrorism. And it brings me to the fact that internationally FARC was considered and was included in a list of as a terrorist group. And, and, and that affected deeply the conversations between the parties, because obviously if you are considered an, a terrorist group, you, it's very hard to engage in a conversation because then there's this question about the legitimacy of the parties at the table and uh, whether the state should actually negotiate with this group, the peace in the country. So when you are dealing with a terrorist group, you expect the country to basically either exterminate it or incarcerate it, but it's harder to imagine a, a, a complete political negotiation between the parties. And it, 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 it was an important part of the, negoci the negotiation, right? 
there were many uh, political parties at the at, at, at our country that were actually challenge, challenging the very basic idea that we were undergoing an internal armed conflict and that the best way to deal with it was negotiating with FARC, even though we were experiencing violence and it was necessary to put an end to that violence and to put an end to that very long process of conflict. Anyways, despite all these difficulties between 2012 and 2016, peace talks took place in, um, in Cuba. It, 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 the, the negotiation didn't take place in Colombia because it was easier to actually have like a, some sort of neutral uh, arena uh, for, for, for the conversation, for the peace talks. And uh, after four years of negotiation, uh, during which uh, the, the parties had many public audiences, uh, public hearings with different stakeholders in the country, including victims and uh, militaries and other people somehow involved, not only in the conflict, but also in the solution of that conflict. Um, the parties uh, came up with a comprehensive transitional justice design. Actually, the Kroc Institute, which is probably the best source to understand uh, and to follow up um, peace accords in a from a comparative perspective, uh, has considered this peace accord as one of the most comprehensive one uh, in the world, um, not only recently, but in general. So why is this comprehensive? And, 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 and I think it relates a little bit with the content of, of the peace accord. It includes, it includes uh, six items um, going from agricultural development all the way to the implementation, verification and ratification of, of this peace accord. So in addition to taking seriously uh, the inequalities in land concentration and uh, as a result, including this item about agricultural development. Uh, the agreement also includes uh, an item on political participation um, to allow the FARC to participate in politics right from the beginning of, 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 of uh, the mobilization, but also to uh, to, to actually um, improve the rights of the opposition in the country. Uh, a third uh, item um, refers to how to put an end to the conflict. This is how to depose uh, the arms. I don't know if that's, that there's a better word in English uh, because in this case, I'm doing a, a direct translation. Uh, and then there's a, a fourth item on illicit drugs. So there's a whole group of measures trying to actually uh, tackle the issue of drug production. And in doing so, it takes seriously the rights of the producers, who in Colombia are basically um, poor farmers, uh, campesinos, who have engaged in the cultivation of, of coca uh, as a way to actually survive. So what the peace accord does is basically recognize, acknowledge these uh, and try to uh, give them alternatives, not only in terms of the eradication, which 
should be voluntary, but also in terms of what to do next if they decide to uh, eradicate the cultivation, eradicate the, the, the crops, then what, what comes next? That kind of things are included. The peace agreement also includes measures to fulfill victims' rights to justice, uh, truth, and reparation. And particularly, it creates uh, many institutions, such as the Truth Commission. This is the first time that in Colombia we have a Truth Commission, uh, which is currently working in, 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 in the report, um, in its report. Uh, and a special jurisdiction for peace, which is like a new jurisdiction uh, specifically in charge of uh, investigating and uh, applying sanctions to uh, demobilized people as part of, of, of this agreement. And it strengthened the preparation measures that were already created in Colombia because we have uh, uh, a law called the Victims Law since 2011 that creates a very comprehensive set of uh, reparation measures, including um, rehabilitation, uh, restitution, and indemnization, among other measures. Uh, and yeah, I think it, it, it gives you a sense of how comprehensive it is. Uh, it's not only about uh, ending the conflict in the traditional sense of uh, the mobilization of the uh, armed groups and the reintegration of those forces to the society, but also taking seriously some of the big problems of our society in terms of uh, drug trafficking, or at least the production of illicit drugs and also agricultural development and uh, tackle with, as I was saying, one of the key problems in terms of um, the land concentration in the hands of few. So Diana, you've cited the Kroc Institute and how that they've mentioned that this is one of the most comprehensive uh, peace accords, right? One of the most comprehensive plans that includes transitional justice. So it sounds great. You've already mentioned that it is quite complicated. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little more about the differences between the outcomes uh, intended and what's actually being seen. Um, and you've mentioned the special jurisdiction for peace in Spanish, they call it the HEP, La HEP, I believe. Um, and these demobilized, these people have turned over their arms and how they're being reintegrated or not. So we'd love to hear more about this, you know, the reality of this complex, comprehensive accord. Yeah, well, that's that's a great question, and uh, actually, I, I um, a short question, a, a short answer for that is: well, we knew it was to be hard, but it has been harder. It, the implementation has been really difficult in our country, not only for the polarization that it has represented. Uh, believe it or not, not everyone is in favor of this peace process, and. Uh, there are some people who are very critical of this agreement, in part because it involved FARC, which as I was saying, is a, a, a political actor now with very low legitimacy and it's subject of many criticism. Uh, but also because um, there are things in the, in the accord 
that have been criticized. So um, this is something that I, 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 I didn't tell you about, but in 2016, after the, the, the peace accord was signed, um, the government decided to um, go through a democratic process to ask people in Colombia whether they agreed or not with the content of this peace accord um, as a way to actually gain legitimacy for the agreement. The result, however, was that the 50.03% of the population said no to the agreement, which talks a lot about how divisive this has been in our society. So I think we all agreed that it was important to end the conflict, to end the violence, but not everyone agreed on how to do so. And especially not everyone agreed on having this very comprehensive and very interesting and complex peace accord. However, that's the context in which the implementation started, a context of polarization uh, between forces that are against or that are critical of, of, of the peace accord and forces that are actually in favor of the implementation. And uh, it's in this context in which some of those voices, voices that had been uh, more vocal about the weaknesses of the peace accord won the presidential elections. So right now our president is part of one of the political parties that have been more critical of the peace accord. And as you can imagine, it might affect significantly the way in which uh, they engage in the implementation. And uh, especially they have a lot of power in terms of the, of the money that goes to finance the implementation of this peace accord. If you, uh, as an international audience, uh, listen to the government, the Cuban government, you are going to find that they say we are committed to, the, to this implementation because we think this is critical for the state, for the Colombian state as a whole. Um, however, in practice, um, there are some doubts about whether they are doing all what they can to actually implement the peace accord, particularly when you check a what are the what's the budget that the government is right now um, using to implement uh, the the different elements of this peace accord? Beyond that, however, we have to recognize that this was very challenging because the peace accord, as ambitious as it is, wanted to change a lot of. Uh, social problems that we have had for 200 years or more in less than 50 years. So that's hard for any state, right? It's even, even if, we, if, we, if, if we would have the most committed government implementing this peace accord, it could have been very, very hard to achieve all what the peace accord wanted to. Um, in addition to, 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 to this very complex agenda that this peace accord represented, we need to acknowledge as well that uh, in some of the regions in which the implementation should be stronger, 
uh, the state has very low capacity to actually implement things. As, in, as an historical matter, it's, it's not new. The fact is that the conflict and the ways in which the state has evolved in the last years has affected its capacity to implement different programs in different regions. Uh, not only because they don't have uh, the, 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 the resources to do so, but also because the legitimacy and the trust of society towards the state is, tend, I don't know if it is, but tend to be very low as, dif as different uh, um, service has um, shown to us. So in this context, <laughs> in this mess, uh, we can say, uh, right now we are experiencing uh, the re-emergence of violence. Um, despite of these problems, during the first two years of implementation, we saw a significant uh, drop in the number of killings. And in, in general, in terms of, 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 of the basic indicators of political violence in the country. But right now, after four years, we are seeing the reemergence of violence. And that's a problem we need to tackle. Um, so just to give you an example, many of the um, demobilized FARC members have been attacked and murdered. And uh, right now, Colombia face uh, one of the most complicating situations of violence against human rights defenders. Um, according to uh, international organizations measuring this type of violence, we are probably the most dangerous country for human rights defenders. And that's a problem for <laughs> this peace process, but that's a problem in general for the country. That's clearly not good at all. And there are very, the, 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 the answer from the estate has been very weak in some, in some instances, the, the, the answer has been a, to criticize these human rights defenders and, and, and the support that they have received is very weak. So this is, th that, that's the situation. Uh, and it brings me to, to the reasons why we are experiencing this reemergence of violence. And of course, one of, of the reasons is the existence of drug trafficking. Colombia is still, it's probably the, the, the main producer of cocaine in the world. And so drug trafficking is still a very powerful presence in our country. And that's something that it's, that as I, as I said before, fuel the conflict, but it's still creating the conditions for uh, having more political violence and more violence in general. So there are very different groups uh, that are uh, trying to, and actually I guess they have already captured the different routes that the FARC was controlling and the regions that the FARC was controlling. So when, when they left, there was, it, 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 the, the, there was some sort of uh, displacement of the, the groups, but there are groups that are now in the regions creating the conditions for this new type of violence. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the situation and it affects 
significantly the implementation of the peace agreement, as you can imagine. So you touched on, Diana, a lot of the complication, a lot of the horror and the damage in people's lives from this internal conflict, which, as you mentioned, is the longest uh, in the hemisphere or was up until 2016. You also alluded to the fact that this is inserted in a circuit of international politics. And one of the major players um, is the United States. And I say it's a long history of Colombia. Depending on where you want to start it, we could look at the Panama Canal, but that's not our focus today. <laughs> so, you know, thinking about the United States and its impact in the peace accords and their implementation and the history of this conflict, one area that comes up is obviously drug trafficking, but I imagine there are many others. So could you tell us a little more about the U.S. involvement and its relevance to the implementation of the peace accords and its history? Sure, that's actually a great, great question. So as you were saying, uh, Colombia and the, and the United States have a long history uh, of relationships. And uh, we could actually say that the involvement of uh, the U.S. government in the conflict uh, dates back to the very beginning of the conflict, but I would like to emphasize the role of the United States government uh, in the last part uh, as a result of the anti-drugs strategy. So in the 70s, as you know, the US government launched the war on drugs. And since then, Colombia has been one of the most critical countries to actually implement uh, these various strategies to fight against uh, drug trafficking, but particularly to fight against the production of uh, drugs. Um, and so there are different strategies in place in Colombia. For example, we have a military presence of uh, US forces uh, in various bases. Um, and we also have a, a lot of different policies in place. Uh, I'm going to refer to one in specific, which is called Plan Colombia. Um, it, it, it has uh, financing different anti-drug strategies in Colombia, including the militarization of the police in order to fight against drug trafficking. Uh, but also different strategies to eradicate uh, coca crops and other uh, type of uh, drug cultivations. And uh, what it's more interesting about this is that uh, this type of strategy uh, is not based on voluntary uh, eradication or in uh, deep work with communities trying to better understand why they have engaged in the production of uh, illicit drugs. Instead, it, uh, has, it has involved a lot of uh, very complicated measures such as a, um, aerial spraying with um, very harmful chemical substances such as glyphosate. So it has been declared for uh, courts in the United States as a very harmful uh, substance. And despite that fact, that's the type of substance that the U.S. government requests the Colombian government to use in order to advance in this uh, "quote unquote" eradication of the of the coca crops. 
Um, why is this so problematic? Basically, because it affects not only the ecosystems and the nature in the regions in which this is used, but also because it affects the health of the communities and, of course, the, the, the whole um, fabric of society in those areas. So it's deeply harmful and, um, and, and it's part of how the US government has been a part of this whole thing uh, of, the, of the armed conflict, the drug trafficking issue, and of course, now the peace, the peace accord implementation. On the other hand, I have to acknowledge that uh, in addition to these anti-drugs uh, strategies, the United States has played an important role as a third party that is constantly asking our government to improve the human rights records, right? So especially during some governments, these ideas of how important it is to fulfill human rights norms has been important um, and it has been part of the conversation between these two governments, the Colombian and the, and, and the US government. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's hard to say what weights more because in practice, where the money goes is to the anti-drugs strategies and all the harms that these types of uh, very military-based and um, non-communitary-based uh, measures uh, are driving. So, yeah, it's 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 a very complex involvement. Despite that that fact, when Biden was elected, I was one of those people who had hopes in that this new government could bring could brings us new ways to think about drug trafficking, to think about the drug issue, and of course, to think about human rights, right? Um, we were expecting, or I was expecting, a government that could actually help us to implement the peace accord and who could uh, de-emphasize the importance of a aerial um, spraying or the use of a glyphosate, but that hasn't been the case. Of course, we can still expect some things, but uh, the, the, the first decisions of the government hasn't been particularly promising in terms of improving the involvement of, of the US in terms of emphasizing human rights instead of anti-drugs measures. This has all been so interesting. You've talked about U.S. involvement and interference in terms of various detrimental effects at the level of international relations, policy, environmental justice. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on potential detrimental effects in terms of U.S. involvement or interference um, in another sense, by which I mean media coverage or media portrayal of Colombia or issues in Colombia in the United States. So for example, we noticed that following the attack on the US Capitol, some journalists referred to this violence by comparing the US to banana republics. There was one reporter who seemed to be racking his brain for some Latin American city to compare to DC and he ultimately landed on Bogota. So what are some of the issues you see with media coverage or portrayal of Colombia? And 
what would you like to share with U.S. audiences who are interested in human rights in Colombia, who maybe aren't being exposed to the most accurate or nuanced representations? Well, that's that's a very complicated question, <laughs> Kali. Um, indeed, I do think that the representation of Colombia in media coverage in the United States basically refers to two aspects. Uh, on the one hand, drug trafficking, and on the other hand, how beautiful women are, which is crazy. Um, in both cases, it's just a reduction of what Colombia is and what Colombia represents, um, reducing all the beauty and all the complexity of my country to drug trafficking is just heartbreaking. As, as an international student in the United States, I, I, I think I experience what most Colombian experience when we go abroad and particularly to the United States, which is this association between Colombians and drug trafficking. We experience that in, 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 in the borders. We experience that in, in bars, in, even in, in, in restaurants. And that's definitely very harmful <laughs> in a way. Um, I understand that it's not only uh, the United States media, but also how a lot of TV shows represents us, even Colombian TV shows. But... That's not all the reality about Colombia. And it also conveys a very wrong idea about drug issues. Uh, Colombia is not even uh, one of the countries in which uh, the consumption of drugs and the consumption of cocaine is more prevailing. The, 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 there's al always in this approach some sort of denial of the fact that the consumption is happening in Europe and the United, in the United States. And there are not enough measures to actually control consumption. It's all about supply. It's all about how to reduce the production, how to reduce the cultivation. But what about the demand? If you don't take seriously demand, if you don't take seriously that you have a problem with drugs, with drug consumption, then this whole thing is not going to work. I actually think that we need to advance to a more nuanced understanding of how this drug issue works, right? And we need to understand that the, the, the prohibition of the substances, it's actually more harmful than the substances in itself, in themselves. Uh, why? Because this uh, approach to the drug issue in which all substance is basically a considered some sort of demon uh, that we need to attack and that we need to ban uh, from society, uh, we are creating the conditions to engender more, more violence because uh, we are creating incentives for different groups to engage in drug trafficking, in drug production, and we are not giving people any alternative. So we really need to re reconsider Uh, how we globally are approaching uh, the drug issue um, and also what it entails to associate a country to the whole problem of uh, drugs and cocaine when 
where there are other countries in which the consumption is the, the biggest problem um, and the production is just one link in, in a long chain that is mostly affected by this prohibitionist approach to the drug issue. So th that's one thing. And the second is we cannot reduce any country to just one part of its history or one part of his reality. That's reductionist, that, that's harmful, and that's not, um, well, that, that's affect the possibility of actually having a, a good conversation about how to transit to a better society, a, a better global society, we could say. You know, there's so many great points you raised there. I mean, that's just, that's wonderful and, and so important to think about, to reflect on the discourses that are created, the, the way that language is used, like you talked earlier about when FARC is labeled a terrorist organization, how that affects its legitimacy at the negotiating table. When Colombia is talked about as this terrorist organization and the cultural imaginary is that of Pablo Escobar, this is part of something that has real effects and that affects policy. So it's not just language and not just policy, but they have this They're working together in, in can be in really harmful ways, but the peace agreement is, is a way to kind of change the political language with, to talk about reconciliation, talk about truth, to talk about victims. So you know, we're seeing maybe the peace accord try to change this, this narrative um, in policy, right? And, and in culture. So, you know, thank you so much for bringing up that really important part of it. Um, and for our listeners, right, to keep this in mind um, and maybe have them think about And ways that they can be involved. So I, I'd like to ask you, Diana, as someone who's worked in academia, works in academia, has worked outside of academia, has done academic research, but is also a lawyer and part of an organization like De Justicia, um, what advice would you have to listeners, uh, students, practitioners, teachers, researchers um, about these human rights issues? You know, how can they get involved? What they should be doing? You know, what places they could be looking for next? Well, the first thing I'm going to say uh, about that is uh, precisely connected to your point, uh, your last point about narratives. We need to change the narratives. We need to start thinking about other issues that are relevant in Colombia and are not necessarily connected with either drug trafficking or armed conflict. There are many issues related to human rights that you could study and analyze, and you, could, you can actually expand the the agenda right that's that's important um there are many sources that you could um look at not only internationally but also locally colombia is a very vibrant place of academic production at different levels uh, of course there's like a lot of production about uh, peace negotiations about peace agreements about the transitional justice process but there are other interest. Uh, so if you're interested, for example, in working with um, communities that have engaged in uh, reconciliation efforts or in peace building efforts, you can go to Colombia and you can actually work with those communities. Um, it's important, however, to avoid two um, risks, which are the, 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 the paternalistic risk and the imperialistic risk, right? So if you are aware, if you are an, uh, a lawyer or a researcher or a teacher who is uh, authentically interested in learning from other cultures and from other, uh, from other experiences, 
you can go to Latin America and actually engage in a conversation between equals, right? Not, not, not from someone who comes from a better or more developed or more advanced society to another, but actually a, a conversation between equals in which you can learn from different experiences, from different from a different cultural background, and, and, and you can actually start developing new ideas and new ways to understand the world. I think that's important to, to avoid this paternalistic or imperialistic bias and actually engage in a real experience of building knowledge with others and in conversation with others. Thanks so much for all of these great points. Um, these are all things that I think about a lot. I think as a teacher, a researcher, a student, I'm constantly interrogating and deeply interested in the ways in which narratives are constructed and the ways in which we share them and pay attention to them. So to conclude, I'd like to ask if you have any recommendations of more narratives, so reading recommendations, uh, for listeners who might be interested in learning more about human rights issues in Colombia. And then following, we can post a list of, of additional recommendations to the production notes. Okay. I will try to focus on those sources that are available in English, so it might be useful uh, for a wider audience um, and I can give you later some other recommendations in Spanish um, for those who feel comfortable uh, reading in Spanish. Um, the first recommendation would be uh, this uh, American professor called Robert uh, Carr. He has a very interesting work on Colombia, uh, particularly his book on called uh, Forgotten Peace. It is very interesting to understand um, the history of violence in contemporary Colombia. If there are some people interested in understanding a little bit more about the land issue in the country, there's also a book a called a distributive justice in societies in transition. Um, this is by uh, various uh, authors, uh, but there are some Colombian authors that really understand the complexity of the land issue in the country, uh, such as uh, Luis Jorge Garay, Fernando Arberi, uh, and um, Jamile Salinas. Um, I, I, this is just to give you an example of the authors that could be very interesting from this um, book. Also, uh, Maria Paula Safon, Rodrigo Primni. Um, there are many authors in this book that are really interesting uh, for you to read. And in terms of other sources, uh, there are uh, some web page that you could look at. For example, the International Crisis Group uh, has interesting reports on Colombia, particularly if you are interested in uh, understanding a little bit more about the peace uh, process and the peace accord. Uh, the International Crisis Group is a good source, as well as the Institute for Integrated Transitions. Um, it has 
very good documents, not only describing the peace process, but also some of its challenges. Uh, and uh, if you are more interested in older human rights issues, for example, if you want to look at uh, environmental justice issues in Colombia, you could look at uh, AIDA, which is an international organizations with, uh, organization with work in Colombia. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a list uh, to start with. Um, and of course, if you want to look at uh, other human rights issues, you are welcome to visit uh, the Justicia's web page as well. Thanks so much for being part of the Rights Pod. This has been an awesome conversation and like all good conversations, opens up even more space for dialogue and that's precisely what we hope this does. And yeah, we'll be trying to audit some of your classes on Zoom, Diana. <laughs> you are welcome, of course. Just let me know. To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod.